Good morning, everyone. My name is Stephen, and the second reading will come from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles, you can follow me as I read the passage. The Songs of Moses and Miriam, starting at verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He will become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he is held into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatest of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In, the, in your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble anguish with grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by. O Lord, until the people you bore pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. When the Pharaoh's horses, chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women followed her. With tambourines dancing, Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, for the horse is its rider, he is held into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stephen. Well, good morning, friends. My name's John. We'll be considering this, this part of Exodus, and I really do hope you've been finding the story of Exodus so far encouraging, 
reminding us that a story that's far from so long ago, far away, still so relevant for us today. And, and so let's pray that again today, that as we reflect on this, we see how God might be speaking to us today. Let's join in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we consider these words, the song of Moses, that you might be teaching us what we must learn, that you'll convict our hearts in the way we must go. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I was growing up, I went to a a public state school for a few years. And every Monday morning, we would have our school assembly. And our school assembly was outside in a big concrete courtyard. And each Monday, the flag would go up and we would sing the Australian anthem, Waltzing Matilda. That was a trick question, just to see if any one of you were aware of that. It's, what is it, what's our anthem? I'm stumped now. Advanced Australia Fair. We would sing our anthem. And I wonder how many of us actually know our anthem. Any one of us who are Australian citizens? If you're Australian citizen, put your hand up. Keep your hands up if you know your anthem. All right, we need to take back your passport. <laughs> but uh, as a nation, we have an anthem, and really every nation around the world, they have their own anthem. An anthem reminds the nation and the people of their identity, who they are, their history, their heritage. It, it rouses loyalty and patriotism. And so as the nation sings together at the Olympics or at any state event, it's meant to rouse this is who we are and we should be proud of it. And it's interesting just to consider the different anthems around the world. There are different themes and feel. You've got the military marches. Some sound a bit like that. Some anthems sound very hymn-like, just like a hymn. Some are royal fanfares like the British anthem, God Save the King. And it's in fact quite interesting just to consider some of the lyrics as well of some of these anthems. And, and one of the anthems that I'm most fascinated with comes from our little brother across the sea, New Zealand. They probably don't want to be known as the little brother, but their anthem, the lyrics of it, is really fascinating because it's an anthem that acknowledges God. It's fascinating. Have a look at their anthem, first verse. God of nations at thy feet, in the bonds of love we meet. Hear our voices, we entreat. God defend our free land. It's interesting, isn't it? God of nations, not just our nation, but the nations. Defender of New Zealand. And then you go to the fourth verse. Let our love for thee increase. Isn't that amazing? Every time New Zealanders stand to sing the anthem, they're calling each other, love God more. May thy blessings never cease. And they're calling down upon God's favor and blessing. Give us plenty, give us peace. God defend our free land. And so there's no doubt as the people of New Zealand stand up to sing, they're calling upon God's blessing. There's no doubt who is God. And in Australia, what do we sing about? Well, we sing about our golden soils and wealth for toils and a, a land that's good by sea, and, and that's all nice. But you see, an anthem's meant to bring clarity to our history, our heritage, our identity. And in a sense, what we see today was the first anthem of the nation of Israel. And so as they came out to sing with gusto, they're singing about their history, 
about who they were, their identity. Now, different anthems will have different themes. And so the British, it's a royal fanfare. You go to the Polish anthem or the Italian anthem, it's, it's an anthem about their victory in war against the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And then you go to, go to the Hungarian anthem, it's perhaps the saddest anthem in the world. Eight verses of lament. Eight verses of lament of sadness and despair and lost wars and corpses and destroyed cities because of their sins of their past. That's what they sing each time. It's a bit like some of the Psalms. But what we find here in, in a sense, this first anthem for the nation of Israel is a hymn of praise to God. And you have to understand why. Just like what we saw in the kids' talk, as they were just saved, they saw it, they experienced it, what do you do in response to God's salvation? You praise God. You honor Him. You acknowledge Him. You see, the Red Sea crossing was the defining moment for the people of Israel. It was the moment when they went from slavery to freedom, from under the bondage of Pharaoh to being people of God. It was the defining moment. It's a bit like for us Christians. What's the defining moment for us in history? It's the cross. And so we talk about the cross. They will talk about the exodus. And they've all come out singing. Now, as a society today, we don't do too much communal singing. When do we sing? We sing at happy birthdays, happy birthday. We sing at the footy, or some do anyway, or try to. We sing school songs. Some in my household, they sing in the shower. But at church, we sing every week. But here you see, Moses, Israelites, they all break out in jubilant, spontaneous praise to God. And so look at verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. And so what are they singing about? Well, they are singing about what God has done and what God will do. And then look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Now, of course, you'll sing about that. They've just crossed the Red Sea. I am only alive. I am only here. I'm only free because of God. And so back to verse 2. He is my God and I will praise him. I will praise him. It's literally, I will decorate God. It's a bit like how you would decorate a soldier for, for his courage. I will decorate, I will praise God. My Father's God, I will exalt him. Now, now that phrase, I will exalt God, what does it mean? Well, to exalt God does not mean we're making God more than he is. Instead, to exalt God is in fact just recognizing who he is. It's recognizing that above every living creature, above every animal, the majestic whales and elephants, God is exalted. He is higher. Above every human ruler, above the prime minister, presidents, kings, emperors, God is higher still. He is exalted. In fact, in New Zealand's anthem, the first line, God of nations, plural, not singular, do you notice that? Because the nations of the world belong to God. He is Lord over the entire earth. He is higher still. And in fact, 
even above the majestic magnificence, the expanse of our galaxy and the stars and the universe, God is higher still. You see, to exalt God is to recognize who he is. Above all things, he is creator. And so Moses here is praising God with a joyful heart. It's jubilant. I will exalt my God. And what is it that he'll, he's singing about? Well, he, he sings about God as the warrior God. He's a military man. God as the warrior God for his people. Look at verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. It's literally, in the Hebrew, it's literally, God is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Now when you hear that, when you read that, he's a warrior, he's a man of war, I wonder whether some of us might feel a bit, you know, a bit embarrassed by that. Because I know some Christians would read this and feel, it just fits that stereotype of God. Vengeful, angry, fire and brimstone type of God. But I like to think God as more of the cuddly, soft and gentle, bearded grandfather Santa Claus God. But you see, as Christians, we should not be embarrassed by this. We should not be. Because it's to remind us that our God is not a pushover. He's not a wimpy, weakling, unable to defend himself, let alone anyone else. He's a fearsome warrior, unmatched, unrivaled, undefeatable. You see, in the Old Testament, God is often described as the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? It means that God is the Lord of armies. He commands the armies of heaven. He's king, he's Lord of all. And so just like in the ancient world, what's happening here is when a warrior returns from war, from his army known to the world at that point, chariots, think tanks, the best of the officers, soldiers, SAS soldiers. But was God ever in danger? Did God ever break a sweat? Well, no. He just hurled them. So easy, just hurled them. You know, just like those little plastic army figurines kids play with, just chuck them around. Piece of cake. And then verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemies, just like glass. He shattered them. Broken and no match at all. Verse 7, You unleash your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. It's like the dry stubble, the dry grass, the kindling. You set light to it, it just takes off. Easy. Verse 8, by the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Now, when you read that, have you, have you ever thought, and considering the miracle last week, have you ever thought how much power in the wind must there be to keep the waters like a wall, vertically? How much power would that be, would be needed? Well, all it took was a blast of God's nostrils, you know, and that was it. And so the anthem so far, it's about the matchless power and might and majesty of God. And so when you read that, they're singing it, they're overjoyed. When you read and hear that description of God, what comes to your mind? Recently at the men's convention, I had a good chat with, with one man who asked, He's trying to reconcile. You read stuff like this about God in the Old Testament. 
you read of God destroying his enemies, wiping out nations. And you hear of this angry, vengeful, judging God. And then you come to the New Testament, and in Jesus we see God as meek and mild and gentle and tender. How do you reconcile this? This man was saying, how do you reconcile the Old Testament God, the New Testament God? Well, you see, in the Old Testament, what we see, we see even more in the New Testament. You see, if we think judgment in the Old Testament was bad, it looks bad. Egypt, the Egyptians, they were destroyed. It gets far worse in the New Testament. Not just the enemies destroyed, like what happened to the Egyptians here. But, but Jesus speaks of people being cast out into the outer darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where they'll be in torment forever, where they'll be in Gehenna, in hell. Judgment actually gets ratcheted up. It gets worse. And at the same time, the love and mercy of God in the Old Testament, it's seen in a greater and more beautiful way in the New. Not just saving them from slavery, from Egypt, not just physically from one land to another, but spiritually forgiven and given a home in heaven. Listen, Don Carson, the, the great theologian, he, he, he would say, the judgment and mercy of God are ratcheted up in New Testament. And that's what we see. So we shouldn't be embarrassed by this. And so we continue now with this anthem. Well, you see, it wasn't as though the Egyptians didn't deserve what they got. Notice their attitude in the anthem. Their attitude was, I walk around like I own this world. It's all mine. It's mine for the taking. I'm invincible. What I want, I get. What I do, I, I, I just do. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it, as you read this, how many today just walk around thinking, I own the world, it's mine for the taking. Look at their hubris. Look at verse 9. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. See that pride, that hubris. They had it coming for them. And then God responds, verse 10, But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters, just like dropping a big rock into the sea, and it sinks to the seabed. And so the anthem so far, it's about the warrior God. He's returned from battle, and we are singing his praises. He's defeated all the enemies. You see, this, this anthem is teaching something about God. It's teaching us something about God. Not just what God has done, not just what God can do. It's in fact teaching that our God, our God always wins. He always wins. So important to remember. Because in this life, it may feel like sometimes God is losing the battle, but he always wins. And there is no equal against him. He's got no equal. He's unrivaled. And God will ultimately, which means good will ultimately prevail. And evil will finally be completely destroyed. And so I think even if we feel a little bit embarrassed to see God described as a man of war, my God, as we share of the gospel, as we share, my God is a God of war. Even if we feel a little bit uncomfortable, you only really need to read the news, don't you? Open your eyes to see what's going on in our world. 
not just corrupt governments getting away with it. We know about that. Not just endless wars and fightings and human rights abuses. Not just the problem of of drugs and drug lords, those who produce those who traffic it to destroy communities and families. Not just seeing in society calling what is good evil and what is evil and depraved good. And then you've got all the ugly normal crimes, shootings, stabbings, robbery, white-collar crimes, violence, domestic violence, abuses, and it just feels like every day so many just get away. Now, in saying that, I'm, I'm careful to not merely point the finger that it's all out there as though the problem is only out there because I know and you know too well that we are all sinners in need of grace. But when you, you open your eyes to all that is happening in our world, don't you want evil, wickedness to be completely and finally dealt with? Done. Gone. No more. Don't you want abusers? Don't you want drug lords? Don't you want those who benefit from exploiting the poor and needy to get what they really deserve? Don't you want that? Don't you want justice? Don't you want there to be someone who would look into the hearts of every single person and judge fairly? No miscarriage of justice. Because if you do, it's why we need such a God. A warrior God. A God who will not let evil get away forever. And that's why Moses and the Israelites, they were out singing, this is our God, praise him. I will exalt my God. And so that's what they were praising about. But now in this anthem, he moves from singing and talking about the warrior God to now the shepherd God, the shepherd for his people, changes metaphors. Moses now speaks to God directly. He's not speaking about God, but he's speaking now to God. And in a sense, he's speaking to God with a rhetorical question. Look at verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Who is like God? It's a rhetorical question. He's got no rival, no competition. He's unmatched. It's why it's important to understand God has no equal. It's important to understand. That's why when we get to the book of Revelation, and we're given a glimpse of the final cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. When you look closely at the book of Revelation, in chapter 12 in particular, you'll find that it's in fact not God who fights Satan. God doesn't go out to fight Satan. Because if God were to go out to fight Satan, it would mean to elevate Satan to God's level. Or it would be to bring God down to Satan's level. They are not of the same kind. They're not of the same rank or of the same level. Instead, the great cosmic battle in the end. Who is it between? Well, God sends his archangel Michael to fight instead. They're on the same level. They're angels. And there's a reason why God sent Michael. It's fascinating. Because Michael, in the Hebrew, it means, who is like God? 
That's what the word Michael means. Who is like God? Exactly like what Moses says here in verse 11. And so when Michael goes out to fight Satan in this big end of times cosmic battle, he's effectively saying to Satan, who is like God? Well, the answer is not you. Not you, Satan. And so Michael wins and defeats him. And so Moses here in this anthem, he's recognizing who is like God. There is no one like him. He's unequaled. He's unmatched. There is no one like him, unrivaled in his power. But what is he like? Well, now he's like the gentle, tender shepherd to his people. Look at verse 13. In your unfailing love, you will lead. That's the shepherd language. You'll lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them. Again, it's the shepherd language of Psalm 23, to your holy dwelling. Now, do you notice in verse 13, what the people of God were redeemed for or redeemed towards? It's not as though now you're free, you can go on to do whatever you like. I freed you from Egypt. You're no longer slaves under Pharaoh. Well, do as you please. Well, not at all. That's not what we see. But, but I wonder whether many people think exactly that way when we become a Christian. We've been freed from sin and so forth, and so I can do whatever I like. Now that I'm saved, I'm free to do whatever I want. Well, yes, I've got God in my life now that I'm a Christian, but I still call the shots. I still direct the ways. I still determine the path. God can just get on board with where I'm going. I mean, many Christians think that way. And so let me ask you, are you one of those? You know, after becoming a Christian, nothing has really changed in your life, in your heart. I still pursue the same pursuits. And God, he's just a tack on. He just come on. He can just come on the journey. I still love the very same things. And I don't have eternity's values upon my heart. Following Jesus did not cost me anything at all. No cost whatsoever. And I still again and again and again fall into the same sins as before. Now, if that is you, no change, no difference whatsoever. You were saved from, but no difference. It raises the question for you to ask in your own heart of hearts whether you're saved at all in the first place. You see, when God saved us, he did not save us to be free so that we can live for ourselves. He saved us for him. And that's why we get verse 17. Look at verse 17. What did God save them for? You will bring them. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. Now that's a picture there of going back to the Garden of Eden. Planting, gardening language. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And so God saved them, freed them from slavery for him. Now we know in the story of the Exodus, they were wandering around in the desert for 40 years. But they were saved so that they would finally be with God. To be with God, to enjoy the delight 
the wonder, the tenderness, the gentleness, the full fulfillment, the fullness, the sweetness of being in the very presence of God. We're saved for God. And until we know that, even today as Christians, until we, are, we know that we have been saved for Him, not for ourselves, not so that we can be free and do whatever we want, until we know we are saved for God, we'll cling on to things and many things as idols. It's why Moses and the Israelites, they can sing. We can sing because we have been saved for God and now we are on our way home. And God is taking us there. And then towards the end of this chapter, Miriam. And now the women, they all join in the chorus with tambourines and dancing. And you can just sense the, the excitement, the joy amongst the community. You just have to feel how wonderful, how thrilled, how happy, how glad they would have been to be singing together. Perhaps, maybe. I mean, I, I really enjoy our singing. But perhaps, maybe... To add a bit more excitement, we can add some tambourines. What do you reckon? Maybe I can play the tambourine. But Yvonne will say to me, you have no beat, you have no rhythm, you have no talent whatsoever, and I agree. But Miriam, verse 21, sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. And that was their anthem. In a sense, the first anthem of the nation of Israel. And so let me now ask you, what's your anthem? What is it that your heart sings about? What is it that in your life that is worth singing about? And I don't mean, you know, sing along to Taylor Swift or the Bee Gees or if you're old enough, the Beatles and Franks, not that stuff. I mean, even in church as we sing. How do you sing? I mean, we don't sing our national anthem, but many of our hymns are, are like Christian anthems. And so let me ask, do, do we sing each Sunday? There's very little communal singing in our society, but at church we do it five times every service. We sing together, but do we sing like we believe it? Now, do you notice our first hymn tonight? I mean, this morning, sorry. This morning, our first hymn, Stand up and bless the Lord. Stand up and bless the Lord, your God, with heart, with soul, and voice. Let me ask you, were you seeing that like you meant it? Bless the Lord. He's highly exalted. He's worthy of praise. With heart, soul, and voice. Or do we only use you know, our upper lips? It's moving a little bit. It's worth thinking about, isn't it, even how we sing. Because when we sing at a birthday party, happy birthday, how do we sing that? With joy, we smile, happy birthday. We don't say happy birthday. Or we mumble it. How majestic is your name? How majestic is your name? Or how majestic is your name? Just our upper lips. Now, of course, I'm not saying that what is outside reflects necessarily what's inside. But if our heart is overwhelmed by our God, how wonderful he is, and it overflows with joy, maybe sometimes our face can show that too when we sing. Because you know what we'll be doing in heaven? 
what are the jobs we'll continue to do in heaven? Have you thought about that? Well, I'm hoping that in heaven we won't need to do any more gardening, weeding, grocery shopping, no more meetings and committees, but perhaps in heaven there'll be a corner for the Presbyterians, they'll have their committees, they'll go on meeting. Doctors, do we need them? No more doctors. Lawyers, are they there? No, they'll all be lawyers, of course. But no more lawyering needed. In fact, no more pastoring needed in heaven because there won't be any grieving soul to comfort. No one feeling bereaved. In heaven, there'll be no more forgiving or seeking forgiveness because it'll be perfect. In fact, no more funerals in heaven. In fact, in heaven, I'll be out of a job. No more preaching. And you're saying, praise the Lord, no more preaching. But do you know what we'll be doing in heaven? What we'll continue to do that we're doing now? We'll be singing. We'll be singing an anthem. We'll go on singing for all eternity. I'll be out of a job. The band, they'll still be in a job. You see, what Moses started here, after the great deliverance of God... Praise the Lord, the warrior, the shepherd, for who he is and what he has done, will continue to do in a far greater, far richer, far deeper way for all eternity. And what is it that we'll sing about? Well, we're told. In that first reading, in the book of Revelation, as it looks back over the the whole of human history, what is it that the people of God will sing about? Well, we read it in our first reading, Revelation 15. They sang the song of Moses. This song. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The two great acts of God's deliverance. The exodus and the cross. And so not just singing the great deliverance through Moses, the exodus, but singing the greater deliverance through the greater Moses because of the Lamb of God whose blood was shed. Whose blood was shed. We will never stop singing about that. In fact, today we will celebrate that in our Lord's Supper. We will be singing about that because when the blood was shed, we were forgiven and we will continue to sing about that the one who absorbed all our sins and died for it. We'll continue to sing about that. The one who defeated all evilness and wickedness. And he himself experienced the most evil and wicked thing man could do to God. We'll continue to sing how how God in Christ defeated Satan and death by his own death. We'll continue to sing about how Jesus was raised to resurrection life and brought about the greater deliverance of our souls. It's an anthem. We'll continue to sing. The anthem of Christ. And we're told the words of that song. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name. Meaning, Everyone will bow down in worship. For you alone are holy. All nations, all nations, just like the first line 
of the anthem of New Zealand. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. We'll have a better song to sing in heaven forever and ever. And so let me ask you now, what's the song of your heart? What is worth celebrating and singing about and praising for in your life? Or is there nothing at all? Because if you come to Jesus, you don't know him yet, but if you come to him, you trust in him, the greater Moses, the Lamb of God, the one who brought about the greater deliverance, the warrior, the shepherd, you too can join in the chorus. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. You see, what we're doing each week as we sing, it's in fact an amazing thing what we do. We may not think much about it, but we're doing an amazing thing because as we sing, our hearts are lifted up each week to the throne room of Christ himself. And each time we sing about our shepherd, our warrior, we sing in anticipation of our home. There is a home that we're going towards. And each time we sing, we're in fact rehearsing in preparation for the grand finale when we will all sing together with a great multitude of disciples from every tribe, tongue, and nation singing around the throne of Christ. And we will experience them a joy, a jubilation, an excitement we cannot even imagine now. But we begin now. We continue to do it now. And each time we sing, we sing in anticipation. And we sing as a rehearsal in preparation for eternity. And so what we'll do now, we're going to sing. Amen.